Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lighthouse Beacon Podcast. I'm your host, Rami Shami, that facilitates these podcasts for the Lighthouse for Grieving Children. But before we begin today, let us honor the land we are meeting on as the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Hundunishini, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. And let's bring to an awareness that the reason we are holding a land acknowledgement is because of the genocide, the trauma, the loss of culture, language, and history, as Jesse said, this all speaks to the indigenous definition of homelessness. As a result, as Nadia George uh, calls them, assimilation institutions, as AKA residential schools, that have brought about a great deal of pain and suffering to indigenous peoples. In these podcasts, we are outreaching to members of our diverse communities within the greater Toronto area of Southern Ontario to gain perspectives, experience, insights, and recommendations on how children's grief is supported within our multicultural demographics. My guest today is an esteemed colleague from a collateral organization and a storied organization at that, known as Gilda's Club of Greater Toronto. And if I may share her impressive bio with you, Tori currently holds a permanent position with Gilda's Club of Greater Toronto as the family coordinator and certified child life specialist. Within the past 13 years, Tori has been working with a diverse group of children and families within clinical, community, and home settings. As a child certified child life specialist, Tori is passionate in providing family-centered care while supporting the health equity and psychosocial needs of children, youth, and families. Tori has extensive experience engaging children play-based learning and emphasizes inclusion and accessibility in her work. Along with working with Gilda's Club of Greater Toronto, Tori is the communication coordinator for the Children and Youth Grief Network. Here, as one of the members of the collective network, Tori is proud to have contributed to bringing accessible grief and bereavement resources to children, youth, families, and professionals within community. And if I may highlight particular words in Tori's bio that really speak to me or stand out for me that have given me this sense of excitement to have her join us today on the, on, the, on the podcast, are these words, diversity, health equity, inclusion, accessibility, and collective. To hold those words, to garner them within the context of grief support and bereavement support for children, youth, is what this podcast is really all about. So welcome, Tori. Hello, Rami, and thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and share our thoughts together today. Yeah, for sure, Tori. It's It's been a long time coming. I've been wanting to have you on for quite some time, and we finally are able to uh, make it happen. Now, I just read your bio and, and uh, highlighted some aspects of it. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work you do specifically? I mean, you know, Toronto is exceptionally diverse, and we're going to get into the whole aspect of diversity can you tell us a little bit more about the work you do in, especially in with regard to children's grief within the context of, uh, of a city like Toronto? Definitely. So I'm working with Gilda's Club Greater Toronto, and we are a nonprofit here in downtown Toronto. Like you say, it's really have a diverse community that we support. We're quite proud that we've been around for 20 years now, and we provide free psychosocial support 
to those who are experiencing cancer-related stress. We offer somewhat of a holistic approach to psychosocial programs, programming that really evolves and encompasses the whole family of those who are living with cancer, supporting one with cancer, and supporting bereaved members who have lost someone from cancer. In terms of our children and youth and family grief and bereavement support, it really trickles through in these five pillars of support that we offer. May it be through healthy lifestyle programming, support groups, education sessions, resources, referrals, and our children and family program. Working with the children, they typically participate and engage in our support groups. And we have a couple support groups that really meet children and where they're at in their cancer experience. Uh, we have our Kids Talk Out support group, and that's for children ages 4 to 12. And that is for children who have an immediate family member living with cancer. We also have our Kids Grieve 2 support group, and again, for children ages 4 to 12. And it's a support group. These are both all support groups that are facilitated by mental health professionals. And for our Kids Grieve 2 group, it's for children 4 to 12 who've lost an immediate family member from cancer. And then going up in the developmental spectrum, we have our Teen Talk program and really inclusive for teens 13 to 18 years of age who either have an immediate family member living with cancer or have lost someone from cancer. And really those support groups, I think, are pillars of our grief and bereavement supports for the children and families we work with. But we also offer grief and bereavement support in the context of family support. We have our Empowering Parents and Caregivers Through Cancer program, and that's an opportunity for caregivers to really meet with myself and look at the challenges they're facing as a family in relation to their cancer experience and what those challenges are within their home and really strategizing together and coming up with different strategies, resources, and solutions and how to support the children. And Ultimately, me, given my experience and background, empowering caregivers to really support their children at home through what they're going through. So we definitely have a, a variety of ways which we're supporting children's grief here at Gilda's and really fostering a sense of community, I think, for ultimately for children and youth to come together to realize that there are others that are going through similar experiences, not always the same, but definitely similar experiences in the sense of having a community where they, a safe space where they can come and address and navigate those challenges that they're facing. Thank you, Tori. Thank you for that background and uh, those insights. If I may ask you, I heard and then I want to speak to building capacity as you sp spoke to in terms of uh, caregivers and families and parents, and what have you. In terms of your support groups, how do they align or similar or differ from the traditional peer support model, which is what we at Lighthouse for Grieving Children subscribe to? Well, at this point, 
pre, I guess we're, we're still in the pandemic, but now that we are living through the pandemic, we've really pivoted our program offerings here at Gilda's Club. And we're offering a peer support virtually for families to connect with others, myself, may it be professionals within our organization, other children, youth, and families to connect virtually. Great. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tori. Another thing you mentioned was building capacity. I mean, you didn't say it like that. You said, you know, supporting caregivers to provide grief support for children at home. Is that correct? That's right. Can I ask you, what are your thoughts and experiences as to the general accessibility to children's grief support within the greater Toronto area? Well, like I said, we have pivoted our programs virtually to an online capacity. And with this, we are seeing continued success in this offering in the sense that it has been more, I think, physically accessible for families to reach out for support and to access that support. You know, instead of having to drive downtown Toronto on a winter night on a Thursday evening after school or to navigate the transit system in the middle of a snowstorm on a Tuesday night. Having the opportunity to connect virtually, I think, is proving to be successful in that sense. But when we talk about accessibility and looking at the different layers and what that really means for a diverse population that we're serving, I think there are many limitations, and we are seeing these limitations within the families and children youth that we serve, and I feel a lot of these limitations are deeply rooted within, may it be, cultural beliefs, values, different limitations and barriers within the world around us, and they definitely inhibit it, inhibit, sorry, uh, families' ability to access supports and services. Well said, Tori. I'm going to borrow a word that you use that I, I like is pivot. So if we pivot uh, outside or away from Gilda's Club and look at accessibility to children's grief support across the greater Toronto area, are there is it accessible? Are there organi- enough organizations providing grief support? Are the programming there? What is What is your perception of that measure of accessibility? I think in terms of the amount of support that's offered, it's definitely not enough at this time. I know we keep bringing up and going back, but the the pandemic has exacerbated the need for support. And I think even prior to COVID, there was a lack of programs and services that were available to children and families. And now so more than ever, the need for these. Uh, the wait list, the time to access support is definitely been magnified. So if I can ask you on that, Tori, how has the pandemic exasperated the need for support, especially from a children's grief perspective? In my eyes, children are going to learn to read and write. That's not something that we typically, I think, should worry so much about. And prior to COVID, I'm quite passionate about supporting children's social-emotional intelligence. And even prior to COVID, we knew that mental health was so important for so many. But with the pandemic, the amount of loss that people have experienced in various capacities 
May it be the loss of a routine, school access, loss of life and health rituals. This has really put mental health to the forefront, I think, challenges for many families. Uh, the feelings of isolation are very real, and I think that's definitely impacted the overall health and wellness, mental health of children and youth within our community. And we are seeing that even here at Gilda's Club. We definitely are finding that's popping up within more of our programs. Yeah, it makes sense, uh, Tori. I see it a lot in my work as well. Uh, not just in the sector of children's grief support, but in caregiver support, bereavement, end-of-life companioning, yeah, no doubt. To segue from that, something I, I, I like to focus on or bring awareness to is actually specifically some of the barriers to children's grief support. And, you know, when the pandemic came, since we're talking about the pandemic, it would be interesting once the pandemic has dissipated and diluted, hopefully, if anybody can relate to this podcast because of the focus on the pandemic, but I think it's definitely, I don't think the impact, the traumatization, the losses, as you eloquently said, uh, Tori, would last, if not for years, for decades, but for for, for generations uh, as a result of COVID-19. But if we can just bring an awareness to, you know, in, in, in my regard, when we assumed that just because we went on Zoom and we went online and everybody had a computer and access to an internet and, and privacy, that we were creating accessibility for children's grief support. But in fact, it was a bit exclusionary because not every family, you know, are, are children in need of, uh, of, of grief support or want of grief support or however we define a family and the terminology of a family can have access to internet, a computer, privacy, and Zoom or how, whatever platform somebody uses. Can you speak to us about from your experience working at Gildas? through the past year and a half to two years specifically, especially, some of the barriers to children's grief support that, that you've seen? Well, definitely. I think, Grammy, the access of the physical device, the technology piece, is very uh, real for many of the families uh, within our community. But there's so many barriers. I think we could chat all day for what this looks like for different families. Definitely, I think at Gilda's, we are serving families with more complex needs. And when you talk about the use of technology, we have had families, you know, where they are multiple children within the home and they're living in quite small accommodations. And they may have one computer, if not none, you know, and how how are we going to support them with providing space meaningful support when the devices just aren't there. You know, we've been fortunate at Gildas Club where we have been able to donate and offer technology devices to families who might not have the ability to connect with us. But in reality, there's only so much that we can do. There are many others that don't have that access. So that's something we definitely think about and recognize in terms of the technology piece. So going back to just more examples of these barriers and how I said there's more complex needs within the family unit and the cases that we're working with are more complex. You know, this can be from having children with special needs in the home and they haven't had that continuing of resources and support that they normally would have had within their 
specialized plans for their children with, you know, with the schools being closed this past year. So those special needs, those challenges for those children are exuberated. Definitely seeing, I think, more complex needs in terms of trauma and previous trauma that families have lived through and experienced and how that has impacted their ability to really navigate this new way of support. I think of a child who has gone through significant trauma and caring for his mom, and how we ask for the support to be offered virtually with our cameras on in our support groups here at Gilda's Club, and how that interplays for him or general just low income that families are facing housing and food insecurity overall lack of resources like you said the computer the devices the lack of physical space i think has definitely been a limitation for many in accessing support may it be a family with multiple children in a single home or or even parent and caregivers living in a home where they just don't have that privacy to maintain, to engage in meaningful support because of their living conditions. And Tori, that speaks to so much of the work that you do as exemplified by your bio. The true measures of diversity that are, that are, that speak to inclusion or exclusion. And you mentioned some barriers that are, are definitely exclusive or cause exclusion within children's grief support because either we don't hold the awareness or we're ignorant, or we don't really care in, in many regards. And I say that, I hope they say that sensitively about the generalized populations that cannot access children's grief support with the programming and the measures and the resources that we have in place. And that leads to aspects of health inequity and inaccessibility. I know at, at, at Lighthouse for Grieving Children, we pride ourselves on the motto or the, and the mission and vision statement of no child should grieve alone. However, that's a utopia that we've been working very hard to fulfill. And I mean, that's part of the reason why we have someone like yourself on this podcast to bring us a greater awareness of where are we missing the mark and what do we need to do within children's grief support, not just for our organization, but as you articulated in people's homes, in other demographics, in diversities that are not on the quote unquote radar of the definition of diversity so that we can fulfill our mission and vision that no child grieves alone. Now let's segue, Tori, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us in confidentiality and and privacy and of course respected, uh, a story, an example, a case of the barriers that you've seen enacted and affected or affecting uh, somebody's access to children's grief support. Yeah, this I feel quite passionate about because like you said, it's a reality for so many. And it's not always in the forefront of our mind when we think we are providing accessible support. But one family that I can think of is a family that has really had a journey with cancer in their life, but also with previous trauma, definitely many complex needs within this family. And for this family in particular, there is family dynamics of, you know, what does a typical nuclear family look like? And that has changed throughout their cancer experience. And different individuals within the lives of this children, youth of this family 
that are now supporting. And there's so many complex layers, I think, that have really hindered them in accessing support. And, you know, it's great that they found out about us and they've reached out, but there's really glaring barriers in terms of, you know, one of the biggest pieces could be housing insecurity. And what does that look like for different families? And with this particular family, you know, when you're living in a shelter system, grateful for the resources that are there for that opportunity, but definitely for a family that has multiple children to access our support virtually in a one-bedroom, say, bachelor accommodation, this can be quite limiting. And these accommodations aren't inclusive or allowing them to access support in a confidential space. You know, at Gilda's Club, we really have strived to develop policies and continue to reflect the needs and adapt them to meet the needs of the families that we're serving, the community that we're serving. But these policies really, they evolve around safety and ethics of confidentiality and, you know, expectations that we ask participants to sign off on for best practices, how to engage in our programs in an appropriate way. And families commit to this, but then looking at their reality, how can we make this happen when a family is living in a bachelor apartment? So with this particular family, I think of the caregiver who's accessing support, and that's great. It's a holistic approach to family support. We have a caregiver that recognizes the value in accessing support for themselves and the children. We have them set up. They've uh, been connected with us and we've prepared packages of materials that we've mailed to the shelter for the kids to be able to engage in our program. But then when it comes down to the logistics of it, the caregiver sharing, you know, I don't know how I'm going to participate this way with knowing confidentiality so with this particular family, it came to the attention that how was this caregiver going to access the support in a confidential space? And they had a thought of, you know, I'll just sit in the bathroom for an hour and a half to be able to participate in the adult bereavement support group. And we chatted about that and what that would look like and feel like, and that's just not acceptable. We're not going to do that. How How are we going to make this work? So that's definitely, I think, a very real barrier. You know, we've had families that were like, well, I could go sit in the car and having the space, you know, when we're providing. I know in my children's grief support group, we often recommend for the children to be alone within their home environment to engage in group, knowing that children often feel when we're talking about grief and their feelings and everything they're going through, they might feel safe in the sense of being able to share more openly when their parents and caregivers are not within the space. And so we encourage them, you know, set the children up in a room alone at the kitchen table or in their bedroom. But for a family that's living in a one-bedroom apartment with four children, that's not a possibility. And that has proven to be a barrier for some. Uh, with this particular family at the shelter, just recognizing that it wouldn't be appropriate nor safe and confidential for the children to be hearing 
what's going on in the adult bereavement support group and knowing that the bathroom accommodation sitting in the bathroom wasn't going to be helpful we looked at well what are some other ways we can make sure that you can engage in a meaningful way and really that looked like me reaching out to this particular shelter and the caseworker there and collaborating together on do you have a space within the shelter for her to be able to access internet in a private confidential space. There's definitely limitations to telemental health. We're not in the same room to feel the emotion in the same way. And whether previous barriers, I think this can be a, a challenge for some in creating that relationship within groups. May I ask you, Tori, what you mean by previous trauma or previous history? Previous barriers. Period, previous barriers, thank you. Can you speak to previous barriers? Well, when I think of previous barriers, if they have different complex needs at that time, for example, I think of a family who's really trying to navigate new family dynamics after the loss of their person in their family. And with this particular family, it looks like legal custody arrangements or on top of just food insecurity, housing insecurity, and the stress of that. And I think that really has affected families' ways of being able to engage in meaningful support at that time. And just looking at and prioritizing those needs, I think, is important when delivering meaningful support. And, you know, uh, you know, I, I've had discussions, I've had with discussions with a number of people in the field, and I hear stories, for example, a single parent with four kids, one computer in a single room dwelling. And I think to myself, how do we provide children's grief support for those children? Like, how do we, we have to, either the resources or the creativity or how, how do we navigate those? And I put that forth to you as an example. Uh, not to mean to put you on a spot, but you are on a podcast. How do we, how do we deal with that? Like, how do we solve situations like that? Or how do you think we can? Yeah, well, I think there's different things we can look at to support these barriers. But I can, I can think of this example as something similar with a family I worked with. And maybe it's looking at or thinking outside of the box of what that support looks like. These are the programs we offer at Gilda's Club our support group, but maybe right now isn't the time where we're going to focus on your children engaging in that support group in that form. So I think of this family that have three children and really we noticed it was, it wasn't working so well with them opening up and sharing within the support group. And it was a conversation between mom and I and she really went into their cultural beliefs, their faith, and what that means for them and how that has impacted their grief. And ultimately, it just came down to my, my children aren't comfortable talking to others. And, you know, they don't even talk to members within our family, let alone strangers. And going back to our virtual support and the limitations of telemental health, and how we're not in the same room to feel the emotion in the same way. It definitely takes more skill and expertise to navigate 
these challenges to navigate and create meaningful relationships, I think. But for some children, it just might not be possible in engaging support in that way. So when you say, how can we navigate or support these barriers, I think it's looking outside of the box in the form of what that support's going to look like. So for this particular family, it was, okay, let's back up. Maybe your children aren't ready to engage in a support group, the three of them sharing a computer. Let's look on at what's working for you as a family right now. And I think that's important for so many providers is to really trust that families know their children best and to look at what is working. And I knew for this family, mom was very much committed to supporting her children and wanting to support them at home and talking about their loss and talking about the feelings that they're going through and navigating that together as a family unit. So we pivoted the idea of support and it was about strategizing again to empower mom as a caregiver and how to talk to her kids at home. So if they aren't able to sit on the computer with us, then perhaps I can give mom different tools, strategies, maybe resources of activities to do with the kids at home in a fun way and how to support the kids through their grief at home. But I definitely think it's looking outside of the box of what that support looks like and really trying to meet the family and where they're at and understanding what their strengths are. And what are our strengths of an organization to that we can add? You know, I think it's important to have a team. I feel very fortunate, Gilded Club, to have a team of really skilled and experienced staff are the experts in supporting the families we work with in being system navigators. And so having a diverse team, I think, is really important. You know, it's a barrier for some to be able to access support where they can connect with others who they relate to. That's brilliant, Tori. And uh, I, I, I characterize it as brilliant because that is the essence, in my humble mind, of a culturally humble approach. What I perceive, what I understood that you did and your organization does is not take a culturally sensitive, culturally competent model where you think you know how this particular family, because of their whatever, religion, faith, and culture that we understand it to be, and then apply programming and services that are geared to what the organization can can provide. Instead, you heard from them what works for them in their particular personal culture as a family unit, in their perspectives of their culture and identity and religion and faith and however it's defined. You heard from them. And, and something else you said that I, I really appreciated was it wasn't about the organization. You recognized what can the organization do and what the organization can't do. Who can it serve and who it can and not serve? And how does it have to adapt, move, and change in its nimbleness to be able to serve a greater demographic of people? And that was an example of it. So thank you for that, uh, Tori. Brilliant, brilliant. Any other examples, any other stories? I mean, actually, maybe I should segue into a, a, another a topic. I've often heard, especially with Zoom, that sometimes... Faith and religion can be, quote unquote, a barrier for accessing uh, children's grief support, specifically now with uh, Zoom platforms. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, definitely, Remy. I think families who have various faith, religious beliefs and backgrounds, this can be quite unnatural for them to share openly about their grief, to participate in a form of support that we're offering this way. So regardless if we're offering virtual support where families can connect with us, this can still be a barrier for many. When I think when even offering in-person programming, even if I was to sit down uh, with the kids in our group on a Thursday night, I think this could be uh, a very real challenge for many in the sense that children don't always want to open up and share about their experience and haven't had that natural ability to. And I see it within religious beliefs, but I also see it in the sense of age. And, you know, I talk to families about the importance of modeling your own grief within the home, being open to express your own emotions for your kids so they know that this is normal, this is natural, this is okay, but really highlighting effective coping strategies. And I'll talk to caregivers and they'll say, you know, I didn't have that as a kid. I didn't have the openness within our family home to express ourselves, to be able to share with my parents how I was actually feeling. And I definitely think this impacts families' ability to be as open. And then I I think of the religious beliefs that tie into the support. We work with families in aligning them with our support support groups rather and again we have our virtual expectations and policies that everyone signs off on for confidentiality purposes uh, that we will have cameras on when engaging in these programs and all members within the group will have their cameras on Uh, And we've developed this for a variety of reasons. You know, it it creates for a safe environment where we know who's behind the camera, but also for a sense of community. And I think helps with, like I said, going back to those limitations of telemental health and creating relationships. So having that physical presence within a camera is ideal. But for some, we've had families that have addressed and come to us and said, because of my religious beliefs, I can't have my camera on. So what we've done as an organization is really looked at this particular family's needs and coming up with accommodations. And what that looks like for them ultimately was, okay, we're going to accommodate this. We recognize that the need for support is there, but also want to respect and value the other members within the group. So uh, what we did was really ask for consent. They are closed small groups. So we asked consent within the other 10 participants. Are you okay and comfortable with this accommodation, knowing that this person won't have their camera on and meeting them all in that comfort level that way? And coming up with different accommodations, too, with how they're going to communicate within that group environment. May it be something as simple as how do you be able to interject in conversation when you don't see a facial expression? So coming up with a different plan of what that looked like for this particular family. But 
we definitely see that in various ways, how faith and religious beliefs can interplay and have those barriers for families accessing support. Thank you, Tori. So maybe this is generalistic. So bottom line, for us to engage in all these other aspects and measures of diversity and accessibility needs and and what have you, what is the what do you think is the bottom line that we as children's grief support agencies, whether it's part of our general program or our focus, what do we need to do? Well, I think there's a lot that we can do. May it be little things or big things that don't don't necessarily happen overnight. In taking an approach to kind of break down some of these barriers, one thing I think of is using a strength-based approach on all of the systematic levels. I mean, it's looking at the families like we talked about and what their strengths are and where they're at and adapting and accommodating those needs to our organizational capacity. And then from there, building our capacity as an organization, I think is essential. Looking at who we're serving, more individuals with complex needs might not necessarily mean that we're providing quantity, but quality of care. And looking at these needs and then taking a look at your current resources, what we have as an organization, what are you really good at within this organization? And then striving to continue that level of quality care. But also I think relying on our community partners, I think it's really important to look at it as collaboration versus competition. We're all here to serve children, youth, and families for uh, with similar reasons. And relying on our community partners to provide the support and fill in the gaps, I think, is important. Knowing and recognizing your capacity as an organization, but also other organizations' capacity. And really utilizing, again, I think it's that idea of the continuity of care and collaborative care where we can engage multiple interprofessionals in supporting these families. And it definitely takes, I think, skill and expertise within your organization of your staff, but also recognizing that community approach. Yeah, Tori, you know, that's that's still an unfortunate reality that there are territories and agendas and funding and catchments within uh, social services and children's grief is not excluded from that quote unquote lack of collaboration and instead sometimes a competition. So we're hoping, especially with messaging from individuals on the the front line like yourself to be able to speak to those aspects of collaboration. But you also mentioned the million dollar question, which is quantity versus quality. And given that most children, if not all children's grief support agencies are, you know, are not for profit, probably 50 to 95% uh, fundraise, depending on community dollars. And so the resources are limited. And it really, you know, begs the question, where do we put our resources into serving the most or serving the most in need or serving those that are margin experiencing marginalization? It's a very difficult question. I'm, I'm, I'm happy I'm not in any leadership positions because it's, it's a difficult question to answer, right? And, and you and I work in, in, uh, in close proximity with people who are seeking support and receiving support. We're sometimes, and I shouldn't speak for you, but sometimes I'm torn 
between the quantity versus quality kind of perspective. Something you mentioned though, which was, and I heard in our last podcast with Amanda Mergos, uh, she spoke to it actually, which was quite brilliant. This aspect of complex needs. Can you expand on that? What does that, what does that refer to uh, from your perspective, and professional perspective? Well, I think when there's complex needs, it's the idea of looking at the whole family. And when we're providing support, if we can look at each family and remember that we can address individual and specific needs. So I think it's important to remember that we look at each family member as an individual, that each family member has specific needs and individual needs. And when I think of complex care, that's where it interplays, is that we can do an intake and get as much information as possible, but it's not until we're actually providing support that different individual needs might come into play for different family members and accommodating those needs and providing opportunity to see the individual as a whole, I think is important. I think of an example of a family who, again, the children are utilizing a device to connect with us, but some children are more open to speaking about their grief and can engage in a way that's meaningful for them by sharing openly versus another child who really struggles with even identifying what is this that I'm going through and being able to navigate that themselves, let alone express it. And so that's an example of just the individual needs uh, that different children have within a family. And when I'm working with families, I often try and remind families, members, caregivers, uh, when they're supporting their children to address their children, whether it be they're talking about a new diagnosis or a change in status, and approaching that individual child individually in their own space, you know, and looking at what their own strengths are and what their limitations are. Victoria, you hear, or what I've heard um, you mentioned several times, is this concept of, or idea of family. And you see it a lot in the literature in grief and bereavement and in end-of-life hospice palliative care. You see this presumed definition of family. And I think with the diversities that we have in, in Southern Ontario, I think we have to be mindful of how we define family and who defines family. Can you comment and speak on that? Well, definitely. I think uh, family is different for anyone you ask in this world. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to someone else? It's very different. And I think it's important to remember that the nuclear family is not what it used to be. Uh, you know, I work with families that have different caregivers in their lives, and it might be a foster mom, it could be uh, extended relatives, friends, and neighbors that are taking on the role of caregiving for children. And I think that's important to remember that it's not necessarily parents in children's lives. Uh, it's a, a whole community of caregivers, perhaps. And this looks so different. And, you know, it's, it's quite common. I'm working with more and more families that are separated or divorced. 
And I think this interplays into the support that's offered as well. Isn't it wonderful when you have individuals who are co-parenting and separated and able to support their children that way, but then looking at often for many that's not the case, where it's not as amicable. And that definitely plays into the support that's offered for the children and what that looks like between two homes. I work with lots of children. I could tell in my support group, oh, you're in a different home this week. Where are you at this week? And how's that going for you? But I think it's really important to recognize that and promote it through our programming offers in a di- offerings in a diverse way. We support at Gilded Club individuals living with cancer, friends, family, as well as those who have lost someone from cancer. And what that family looks like for some might look completely different for others. So definitely, I think it's important to keep that in mind. And receiving, you know, this knowledge sharing from you, uh, Tori, really emphasizes the point that we need to collaborate. We can't work in isolation as organizations. We need to collaborate, learn from another, learn from the communities we serve, learn from the families and, and however they define themselves as families, how we can better serve the demographics of diversity within the greater Toronto area. And I mean, that's what we're doing today. Like that's, you know, you're sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, your insights with us on this podcast. And it's been absolutely invaluable. Anything else you could share with us that you'd like the world to know, Tori, from what we've talked about today? Well, like you said, with collaboration, I, um, I, I really see the value in that if we can collaborate as interprofessionals, community partners, support that we're offering families, I think that provides a quality aspect to the care we provide. Uh, you know, looking back at that family that we addressed that had those barriers in accessing support within the shelter, uh, reaching out to the professionals uh, that are supporting them and trying to work together to fill those gaps. I think my greatest hope is that we all can continue to be brave enough to address the gaps within our service and not see it as a a downfall or a shortcoming of our organization, but actually a strength. You know, I think of a recent support group we offered that didn't necessarily fall through to the completion of success that other support groups has because we had so many barriers that the families were facing. And for a while, I looked at that as a sense of failure. And it, I sat on that and I reflected on that as, oh, we've done something wrong. But maybe looking at it as, what did we do for these families to make it work for them in a different way? What did that success actually look like? And seeing it not as a failure, but as an opportunity for growth to learn and to adapt our supports and services. I think, again, if we can all commit to the ability as professionals to be lifelong learners and for organizations to value that in professional development, um, to really empower ourselves to commit to an ongoing sense of openness 
to learn from others, to hear from others, and to try to better our own skills, expertise, and abilities. That's ultimately, I think, what's going to be a support for these children and families we're serving. And once again, Tori, you exemplified a culturally humble approach. The definition or the pillar, as you said, of a culturally humble approach is to be a lifelong learner individually, professionally, and as an organization. So thank you for that. I think, I think that's a great place for us to, to sign off. Thank you so much for your time today, Tori. Your, your knowledge sharing has been invaluable. Well, thank you so much, Remy. It's been a real pleasure to be here. And again, I am, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk about the reality of so many families and to continue to learn and hope that others will really appreciate and value our conversation as well. So thank you so much. Excellent. Excellent, uh, Tori. I really want to connect you, if you don't know her already, with our Community Engagement and Multicultural Outreach Manager, which is Danielle Lobo. And I think uh, you'd have a lot to compare and share notes on. I would love to. I just thought, did you just recently hire Danielle? Yes. Yes. I'm very excited. I'm very excited. And she was on this podcast many moons ago before that was even on the map. So I'm very excited to be working uh, much closer with her and helping to build on everything that we've done at Lighthouse in the past two and a half, three, uh, three years. So very excited. And I'd love to connect her with you if you are not connected with her. Well, I would love to connect with Danielle and uh, really hear about the work that you're doing and continue to collaborate together. So thanks so much, Remy. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. If you want more information on the programming that Tori and her team are involved with, just visit gildasclubtoronto.org. And if you'd like more information on our programming, visit us at grievingchildrenlighthouse.org. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. This has been the Lighthouse Beacon Podcast. My name is Rami Shami. Stay safe, everyone.